welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Now, before you came this morning, had anyone heard of Festival of Thoughts? These events taking place, a few over there, um, a few events taking place in Singapore this week. Well, more than a few, uh, 80, as you've heard, close to 80 different evangelistic events happening in workplaces primarily. Lots of talks for our friends and colleagues in the places uh, that we work, um, trying to bring the gospel to some description of relevance to our experiences in our careers. And I'm particularly excited by this form of ministry. It's really connected with my own kind of personal story and how it is that I've found myself on that journey. You heard really briefly from being a guy who used to work in finance in the city in London and now working as a full-time Christian apologist evangelist. Um, You need to check out our website, festivalofthought.buzz. Uh, Check that out when you go home. You're going to see um, all the different events taking place which are available for the public to attend. And there will be lots more behind closed doors in some of the places that no doubt many of you work here today. I want to just, before I get going with the message that I share, just unpack a little bit about the origins actually of Festival of Thoughts. What exactly this thing is. And the best way that I can explain it is by taking you back to what I think was probably the most meaningful opportunity that I ever had to share the gospel with one of my colleagues at work. And no doubt many of you here following the Lord are really desirous of opportunities to explain your faith um, to your friends at work. The first time that this happened for me was in a very... um, kind of not a very exciting place, a little city called Northampton, which is about 50 miles north of London. Definitely not somewhere uh, to boast about being uh, or spending too much time, but we had been in Northampton working on a deal for one of my private equity clients. I used to be an accountant, as you heard, and in particular, I advised private equity houses in London on their investments, and in this case, um, an IPO by way of exiting the investment, which meant we were in Northampton for for weeks on end, working really, really long hours on uh, getting this deal done and hoping to produce the right result for our client. And midnight, at the end of one of these days, midnight, uh, one of my colleagues and I, we decided we'd um, go and get a drink just before we went to bed, um, just to cap off the day and talk about some of the things that had happened. And this was at the long, uh, you know, the period of prolonged, um, long working nights away from home. And about one hour before uh, we'd gone into the bar together, uh, my colleague, whose name was Nick, got a text from his girlfriend to tell him that it was over. It was over. Nick was more interested in his career than her. He'd been away from home for so long. He'd been making so many sacrifices. He'd not really been in touch, such with the demands of this uh, particular project we were working on. His girlfriend had been very patient, but she said, it's over. Honestly, you are more interested in your career than you are interested in me. And Nick started to share a little bit about 
this and almost the sense of devastation that he felt. And he said, Andy, why is it that you, you're here with me? What kind of answer do you have to all these sacrifices that we're making? We are really pouring ourselves out into our careers here. You know, where do you get your sense of purpose from? Something which sustains. I'm devastated at this. I don't really think I'm going to be able to win this girl back. What can you say to me um, in this moment? And I was able to say that as a Christian, it gave me uh, something really powerful to hold on to in terms of um, sustaining a sense of meaning and purpose, despite all of these difficult experiences. The next topic of conversation that came up, all in the space of 20 minutes, was about um, a little spreadsheet that Nick and I had received earlier in the day. And the numbers in this spreadsheet were kind of not what we were expecting. They didn't quite fit into the story of the business case, the the business that we were trying to float. Uh, We were wondering, how do we kind of square this circle? How do we make these numbers kind of not mean what they really mean in the context of what we're trying to do for our client? We knew very well that we could easily get away with it could rhyme things a little bit differently. We could just emphasize other things over these numbers um, just to preserve the narrative of what was going on. In other words, a massive question of integrity. Many of you who have experience in finance, you've been involved in some of these deals, whether on the public or private sector, you know that you can quite easily get away with ignoring numbers, ignoring narratives, and most people wouldn't really know. It's a question of personal integrity. And again, I got to share quite a lot of what integrity means to me as a Christian. We were coming quite close to the end of the deal. And the third topic of conversation was how much of a bonus should we be pushing the partner to pay out when it comes to Christmas? We knew exactly what the fee was. We'd been involved in putting together the engagement letter. We knew what our client was going to pay to the firm. We knew what the partner was going to get. So how much should we ask for? In other words, a big question about how to handle wealth and where to start with applied ethics. Again, something we've got so much to say um, from the Christian perspective. And these pennies started to drop with me. I made my way back to the office in London. I was involved in the Christian group um, in the firm. It was a large enough firm. There were 7,000 people in our building. We had uh, 250 people on the Christian uh, network mailing list, and we thought... Maybe there is an opportunity here to take these questions, these issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, working in this industry, working in places like this. There's an opportunity to connect those questions with the Christian gospel. There are things that Jesus Christ says. There are things which the Bible teaches, which shed light, which bring relevant, good answers to these questions. Can we put the two of them together and somehow release opportunities for our friends and our colleagues to explore the Christian faith, to hear about Jesus, to be invited into a relationship for the first time themselves? So to continue the story, uh, there were a few other firms in London where other little pockets of Christians were having similar conversations. How can we make our faith relevant to our workplace to the colleagues that we love so much and we desperately want to see them 
come to know Jesus themselves. So in short, we decided to work together. We thought, you host an event, you host an event. Don't know who those guys are, but they'll host one too. And we'll have this program of different things happening in a week. We need a clever name. What about Festival of Thought? And so back in 2015, in the financial district of London, Festival of Thought was born. We had an amazing, powerful week. People coming to the Lord's fruit that we never expected to see. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, Fast forward a couple of years then, we've had festivals of thought take place in Chicago, four cities in South Africa. Last year, we're at the start of 75 to 80 events in Singapore. This week, check out the website. And in the pipeline, we're going to Zurich, Switzerland uh, later this year, followed by San Francisco, uh, California the following year and then possibly Sydney, Melbourne in Australia. God is really moving through this ministry. It's absolutely incredible. Who'd have thought that the gospel has relevance to work? All of you would have thought that, I'm sure. So uh, guys, do get involved this week. So many different types of things happening. Pray about it. What questions do your friends and colleagues have? What type of event might be interesting to them? Take the courage to invite them along. These questions are such an incredible opening into finding out more about Christ and more about our faith. Now, if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John and and chapter 20. Gospel of John chapter 20, and we're going to read from verses uh, from 19 through to 31. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hand, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. I'm going to talk an awful lot about Jesus today. I want to tell you how it is that I came to know Jesus for the first time to come share my own story with you. We're going to talk about doubt. We're going to talk about questions. We're going to talk about what it really means to walk in relationship with Jesus, even when we've got questions and when our questions can seem like blockers. I had the rare privilege of growing up in a Christian family, Northern Ireland. Um, I was hearing from a friend that in Northern Ireland, it's um, the, church, the place in Europe with the most churches per square foot. So almost, you would say, a kind of social expectation that one might be a Christian. And that's certainly how I perceive what it was to be a Christian. At any point in my childhood, my teenage years, up until the age of 19, I would have told you I was a Christian. I would have had no problem taking that title in public, admitting to my friends at school uh, that I was a Christian. But with retrospect, I can tell you very clearly that I was not a Christian during those years, despite the fact that I was in church every single week, despite the fact that I told people that I was. Unfortunately, I had radically misunderstood what the Christian message really was. I had thought that being a Christian was all about kind of upholding um, a certain level of moral standard, a certain level of good behavior, so that if at the end of the day, when it came to judgment, if my good deeds kind of outweighed my bad deeds, I'd be all right on the night. I wasn't overly interested in a relationship with this person, Jesus, who really was at the center of the gospel. It just hadn't struck me that that's what it was all about. And in those teenage years, despite wanting to be a Christian, kind of wanting to identify with it, but unfortunately understanding it to be all about how I behaved, I came into this really destructive cycle of noticing that it was really, really hard to live up to this standard of moral behavior that I thought was required. I couldn't live up to my own standards, let alone how uh, could I live up to God's standards? And so I started to get really depressed and a little bit kind of angry with this Christian faith. It's not bringing me any life. It's not bringing me any joy. It seems like just a really hard daily, weekly test that I'm feeling every single time. And I'd be in church on a Sunday morning, um, counting the bricks at the back of the wall, listening to the preacher speak, and I'd be feeling so rubbish about my inability to be a Christian. 
uh, be just deeply regretful of what had happened on Saturday night, the night before you'd heard I played a little bit of rugby. If anyone knows what rugby culture is like, then you can um, colour in the dots and join the dots of what I'm trying to tell you at the moment. And this kind of cycle of disillusionment with my Christian faith continued until um, I actually went away from uh, my uh, Christian home, from some of these support networks, from this kind of social expectation of Christianity into um, a radically different environment. And this is when I moved to Newcastle uh, upon Tyne in the northeast of England to study uh, for my undergraduate degree. I did corporate management, which was kind of the first step into this corporate career that I've described a little bit. And at the age of 19, I was just very aware that it was either make or break for my Christian faith. What way was it going to go? This kind of cycle of despair, not being able to do it. So if I can't do it, I'll just leave the whole thing behind and get on with having a good time. Or maybe I'll give it one more roll of the dice. And thankfully, I had a friend who brought me to church in Newcastle and Um, On that occasion, the pastor preached the gospel in a way that I'd never heard it before. He emphasized this word grace. How many of you know the word grace? What grace means? That salvation is a gift that we receive, not because we earn it, but because God in his love wants to reach out to us and call us into relationship with him through Jesus and this death on the cross of Jesus, his son. And I thought to myself, well, I tell you what, I know I can't earn this. I'm going to respond to this message of grace, this gift thing. I'm going to ask God to give me this gift. And at that moment, I truly became a Christian. I received my salvation by coming to God through Jesus on the cross. And at that moment, life inundated everything about my experiences. From that moment, I became new, born again in the Lord. And despite the fact that I had many, many questions about what it meant to follow Christ in the 21st century, questions about science, questions about the Bible, questions about the historicity of some of the things we hear about Jesus, questions about evolution, What about the dinosaurs? All of these different things that are questions in our culture. I was able to take them along with me on the journey. I was able to carry these doubts and continue in this relationship with Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you about today from John chapter 20. This relationship between our doubts and the person of Christ. And as I share that message, let me open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We're so glad to be here. We're so glad to be here together as brothers and sisters and with new uh, visitors here today. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your love. And God, as I open your word and as we together seek to find you and what you're saying to us in it, We pray for your spirit to fall, for your blessing to come upon us each. And Lord, the true things that come out of my mouth, the things which are from you, 
Lord, we pray that they would land in our hearts. And the things that are not of you, the nonsense which comes from me and it's not of you, Lord, would it fall away? Lord Jesus, would you preside over the next few minutes as we seek you and we hope to find you. Amen. So do keep that passage uh, from John open in front of you. You will be aware that the Gospel of John is one of the eyewitness accounts that we have about the life and teaching of Jesus, written somewhere uh, between the period AD 70 to AD 90 by one of Jesus' closest followers. It's an incredibly precious historical document. And what we have here in front of us is this eyewitness account of what happened on the day that it was discovered that Jesus' tomb was empty. An empty tomb of a man who was publicly killed, publicly crucified just three days earlier in the city of Jerusalem. And a little bit before our passage kicks in, we read that uh, Mary Magdalene is the first person to go and discover that tomb. I love the fact that the gospel is unashamed in telling us that it was a woman who discovered Jesus' tomb being empty. Any of you aware of um, uh, the cultural context of the ancient Near East at that time will know that there was no uh, weight attached to uh, the witness of women at that time. I love that the Bible tells us that it was really women who discovered it, that authentic truth of what happened and the unashamed dignification of everyone in our society. I love the fact that it's Mary Magdalene who discovers it. And she goes on, she runs back and she tells Peter and she tells John and then they go running to see this tomb for themselves. And I love the way that uh, John includes the detail about him getting there first. Obviously, he's going to uh, let us know that he was the superior athlete. <laughs> and Peter and John, they react uh, in different ways to this evidence that they discover. And then by the time evening comes, they are together with uh, the rest of the disciples, bar one, in this upper room. And remember, this is the same upper room where they'd shared Pass uh, Passover um, just a few days earlier before it was that Jesus went to the cross. And what we have here is an incredible insight into what it means to deal with doubt. To deal with doubt um, as a result of wider culture, doubt in our own hearts, and doubts which are expressed by our own brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, I don't know what your personal experience with doubt is. What sort of things you tend to doubt. And why? What is it that you doubt? And why do you doubt it? Do you doubt things about yourself? Do you doubt things about your friends? Do you doubt things about God? Do you doubt things about God's work in your life? God's purpose for your life? Do you doubt things about this world that we find ourselves in? What's it really all for? Now, there are people who adopt skepticism as if it was some kind of virtue. 
many cultures today tell us that skepticism is a virtue. It's a principle that we need to adopt. But I would say that that principle is based on a confused idea between the relationship of faith and reason. Some people are doubtful because they have adopted this principle of skepticism. Others are doubtful because of things that have happened in their own past. Things that have happened when they were little kids, things which happened in their family lives, things which make it really hard to trust anyone or anything. Broken relationships, things that have gone wrong, shattered hopes, shattered illusions. That's why other people tend to doubt. Maybe you doubt because of one particular thing, one particular question, one particular burden that you carry, something you just can't work out. Why God this? Why God that? One particular thing. Perhaps there are people here this morning who know exactly what that particular source of doubt is in your own life. Doubt, for all of these reasons and more, is just a common denominator of our human experience. What do you doubt and why? But it doesn't matter necessarily the source of your doubt. We are all faced with the same set of questions. And we must all give an answer to questions along the lines of, is God really there? Is God really loving the way that the Bible claims he is? Does God really have an interest in my life? Did Jesus die on the cross for me? Or was that just a nice story for everyone else? And I'm not really part of it. These are questions which, despite the source of our doubt, we must all come to an answer. And I remember as a little kid, uh, Northern Ireland, the countryside where I grew up, actually, I've got to say, it's an environment which is probably not possible to be further uh, from Singapore in terms of this city, metropolis, uh, 24-7 lights, camera, action, this great city uh, and all the lights and things that come along with Singapore. In Northern Ireland, it's a country place. And I grew up in a house with a field on all four sides, uh, cattle in a couple, sheep here and horses there. It was an agricultural uh, um, upbringing. But one of the best things about that was that we didn't have the pollution that lights sometimes cause. And we were able to get this unbelievably clear view of the night sky. And on a Sunday evening, we used to go and visit my granny, who lived about an hour away. And, and we would come back on a Sunday evening. And in the wintertime, uh, these night skies were like something I will never forget. And as a little boy from the earliest of ages, I just remember looking up at those stars and thinking through the questions that I've just named to you. God, are you really there? Do you really love me? 
They talk about Jesus, but I'm not sure that I'm part of that story. What is your answer to those questions? Because the clear suggestion that we get from the Bible, the clear suggestion that we get from history, is that this is a very firm set of answers. That God really is there. God really does love us. Christ really did die on the cross for each and every one of us. There is this audacious claim that Jesus is everything that we need in life. This audacious claim that Jesus Christ is the very essence of truth. Truth personified. He is the answer to all of our deepest longings. The one who can free us emotionally to levels we never thought possible. And the one in whom all of our intellectual curiosity, to the extent that we are intellectually curious people, he is the one in whom all of these things hold together. Now, I'm Northern Irish, and obviously at some point I'm going to mention another amazing Northern Irishman by the name of C.S. Lewis. And I am certain that many of you will have read Lewis's work and enjoyed um, some of the incredible ways that he was able to explain the Christian faith. And there is one particular description that Lewis makes of his own faith that I have held on to and find that it rings true for me too. Perhaps it does also for you. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. He was saying sun, S-U-N, but notice the pun. He was a very clever master of language. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The teachings of Jesus Christ make the most sense of reality. They explain what our lives mean, how we make sense of our journey in this world. And his death on the cross contains the depths of hope that we need. The sun has risen. And my question to you is whether you know that risen sun for yourself this morning and of course there are loads of questions lots of things we need to ask about Jesus who he was what does death and resurrection really mean faith will never require us leaving our brains at the door God will never be honored by our refusal to think there are questions yet If it is true that Christ is Lord, truth personified, then we should expect all of these questions to hold together in him. And for that truth to resonate at some level in everything and everyone that he has made. But what do we do when we really feel the weight of these doubts? That's why we're going to look at this little microcosm of the possibility of faith in this locked upper room and this dialogue between the disciples, 
Thomas and Jesus. This little microcosm, I think, of what it means to have the possibility of faith um, in a locked room with a raging culture outside, lots of questions and skepticism and doubt outside and even a little bit inside and a conversation between people that have seen Jesus and people that don't know Jesus. We're going to focus in on this little microcosm. I like that word. Do you like that word? I do. Let's talk about, firstly, this doubt in the culture. And let's look at the passage. It says that in verse 19, the disciples, they're gathered together in a room with the doors firmly locked. So imagine these doors are locked. That door is locked because we're so scared of what's happening outside. We're in here thinking about Jesus. We're wondering about Jesus, what he means in your life, what he means in this other person's life. But out there, it's a different story. These disciples are in a locked room. And it certainly was a raucous and confusing time in Jerusalem. Lots of widespread public disagreement about who this Jesus person was. Global culture is full of so many questions. And skepticism, as I've mentioned, is heralded as a virtue. I'd commend to you a book which my colleague Abdu Murray has just written um, called Saving Truth, where he documents, um, looking at the West in particular and the United States, he documents this progression in public discourse and some of the errors he can point to in public thinking in all sorts of areas to do with our human experience. Questions about freedom and human dignity and sexuality and gender and science and faith. In this global culture, we have arrived at a real sense of confusion and it's a little bit like Thomas Sowell. He puts it by saying, the problem that we have in global culture now is not that Johnny can't read or even that Johnny can't think. It's that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He's confused it with feeling. Maybe some of you will be aware of the word which the Oxford Dictionary chose as its word for the year in 2016, post-truth, to describe a situation where um, much of our public discourse is based more on emotional and feelings-based responses than objective facts and evidence. Very, very interesting word for the Oxford Dictionary to choose as its summary of global culture. And in that context, we are left with the question of who or what can we rely on? Is there anyone out there who might care enough to show us the way? This kaleidoscope, confusion, difficult to focus on anything in particular. And yet we have that strange clarity around the person of Jesus, this risen son. Now, I have one brother, um, one younger brother by the name of David. Um, he's probably slightly better looking. He's a superior athlete. He is uh, more intelligent. I have to admit that too. He's married before me. He's got a beautiful baby boy now called Jacob. So in all areas of life, he is beating me. 
Apart from one little story that I've got about him when he was a little boy, and he was very silly as a little boy. He was a complete plonker, actually. And um, Northern Ireland in the um, southwest has a great little region of lakes and places where people go on boating holidays. And our family went on a boating holiday uh, when we were little boys and it had all been very good up until the point that we were disembarking the boats and we were walking along the jetty and uh, my little brother is only like three or four years old at this point and he falls off he goes into the water splash he's off the jetty and he's into this deep lake and he's a plonker he can't swim and he's starting to uh, actually struggle quite a bit and he's wearing clothes, which as soon as they absorb the water, they become very heavy. Um, thankfully, there's a happy ending to this story, or else I wouldn't be sharing it with you now. But there he is. Picture the scene of a little boy struggling, waving around. He can't swim. He's being inundated with all of these things which are making it hard for him to keep on the surface. And the question is, what is it that rescues a person in that kind of context? Is it where we keep the answer, which in this case would be something like a buoyancy aid? We keep that answer in a locked room. We keep that away from the people that really need it most. Is it that we all agree, all the people on the side of the water, on this jetty, we all agree that actually it's going to be fine. No matter what David chooses to do in this situation, he's going to find his own way to where he really needs to be. Reality is, of course, something he gets to define for himself. He's not actually in water, is he? That's really just something which is not based on fact. It's more about how we all feel. Let's see how he gets on for himself. Reality is what we define for ourselves. Locking away the answer or pretending that there's no answer to be found. Do either of those things rescue someone struggling to keep their head above the surface in life? Obviously not. In this case, it was my father who jumped in like a superhero and pulled David somehow back to the shore. Now, my dad can't swim either, so I actually give him real kudos for doing that. What a guy. What a hero. But doesn't that tell us something about the nature of pragmatic love? Love which has the answers and not only stays at a distance with the answers, but reaches in and rescues us and pragmatically pulls us to where we need to be. Have you heard that story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep? And even though 99 of them are okay... They're safely pasturing, they're safely on the jetty, they're doing okay. 99 of the 100 are doing okay, but there is one that is struggling. There is one little sheep that's got itself stuck in a hedge, struggling, can't get away. And that shepherd will go after the one Jesus comes to us and he is that offer of pragmatic love. For those of us with doubts, he reaches out and he pulls us in. For those of us who are skeptical, who are intellectually curious, he is the measure of our intellectual integrity. Will we go where the evidence leads? Will we investigate his life? 
Will we understand about his cross? Will we put our faith in him when that faith is merited? When we have an answer to those questions, that God is there, that God loves us, and that Christ is for us. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You've all heard that, I presume. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, do you remember where those words were spoken for the first time and to whom they were spoken? Who were those words said to for the first time? Those words were spoken to Thomas, the skeptic in our story. Back in John chapter 14, we're reading this morning from chapter 20, but the last dialogue that Jesus has with Thomas is back in chapter 14. And therefore we see this real poignancy around the doubts of Thomas. Have you ever asked yourself, why was it so hard for Thomas in particular to believe? Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus came. It says that in verse 24. But the last thing Jesus says directly to Thomas before he was crucified a few chapters earlier in chapter 14, was this. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Jesus says, I will come back and take you, Thomas, with me. And then we read, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. What? God? Jesus? Not a sparrow falls from a tree without your knowing. You know exactly how many hairs are on my head. Nothing happens in this universe without your knowing. Why did you come when Thomas was not there? What is going on? Do you see the poignancy? Do you see why it was so hard for Thomas to believe? And the other disciples, they do what they can. The enthusiastic Christians, they say, well, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, we, we've seen the Lord. Why, is it, why will you not connect with us? We, he's been here. Thomas, we have seen the Lord. They do their part. They're faithful in their evangelism. They try to describe this amazing thing, this amazing impact that Christ has had on them. But somehow, for some reason, it's not working for Thomas. There is a fundamental disconnect. So let's zoom out of this conversation. Thomas here, the disciples there. Let's look at this conversation from two perspectives. And let's start with this microcosm of a conversation from the perspective of the Christians, the ones who were there when Jesus came and he stood among them for the first time. In verse 19, they're really excited about sharing their faith. They've had the Holy Spirit breathed on them. 
They've had Jesus come and say, peace be with you. Shalom. Enter into my rest, my security. On the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. It's done with. He's taken the punishment for our sins. And now he's resurrected and he says, shalom. Enter into the peace of a relationship with the God who has made you and which my death on the cross has made possible. And then he shows them his hands and his side, evidence that it really is him. I think it's really important that in our hurting generation and the pain which many people feel, that we worship a God who knows pain, who knows suffering, who has got scars on his hands and his side. But when the disciples come and they have this conversation with Thomas, all they've got, and it's a little bit, it's a bit rubbish, all they've got is, we've seen the Lord. It's a bit of an inert statement. It's not really addressing where Thomas is coming from. It's not responding to his question. And it is a faithful form of, of evangelism, witnessing to the work of Christ in our lives. They wish Thomas could understand, but this thing is not working. If only he'd been there when Jesus came. Now, of course, there will be uh, a number of reasons why this is um, the best that the disciples can do. They're, they're not able to come up with anything better. Maybe the first reason, and it's a legitimate one, is the confusion that they themselves felt about what was happening and these issues in their own thinking which hadn't quite been resolved. They have only had a few hours to adjust to this resurrected man. Mary Magdalene, her first conclusion when she saw the empty tomb was that this was an instance of grave robbery. Someone had stolen the body. She hadn't really clicked that God the Father was involved in the life of this person, Jesus Christ, and that God the Father through this resurrection was endorsing the person of Jesus and everything he had said about his life. She was all on board. She was a disciple. She was following along. She was with Jesus' teaching. And yet, something hadn't quite clicked in her thinking. She hadn't quite come to the fullness of a developed Christian worldview, despite the fact that she was moved to tears at the possibility of Jesus' body being stolen, she hadn't quite connected that Jesus' life was one with God the Father and that God the Father was willing and active to intervene in human history and that this resurrection was in line with a long-awaited period of prophecy about this Messiah. And I wonder if we as Christians to some extent, live with this overhang of a secular mindset. We said the questions we had to answer were about whether God is there, whether God loves us, whether Christ's death on the cross is for us, and that we must live according to our answers to those questions. And yet many of us never allow those answers to inundate the rest of our thinking to develop this Christian worldview. 
And in reality, I'm afraid to say that what that means is that we continue, to some extent, as functional atheists. We answer these questions at one level, but that's where they stay. The rest of our life has an overhang of a secular mindset. We are able to say that we have seen the Lord. We are able to uh, witness to the work of Christ in our lives. But unless we take that next step of giving an answer for the hope that is within us, look up 1 Peter 3.15 when you go home and you will see that mandate to all Christians. Then we will, to some extent, not be able to quite reach all of the questions and doubts that our colleagues and friends present to us. So I'm wondering, what are you reading at the moment? What are you researching? What are you looking into with an active interest as part of developing your Christian worldview, as part of understanding and analyzing the questions of the global culture? Take that key opportunity to grow in your faith. The second possible reason why these Christians in the upper room, despite their joy, despite their shalom, despite their filling with the Spirit, the second reason why they're a little bit ineffective in their dialogue with Thomas, in verse 9, a little further up, we see that John himself admits that he came to believe, but says that he had not fully understood this amazing outworking and relevance of the gospel. The global culture, post-truth, as the Oxford Dictionary says that it is, is confused about freedom, as we said. Free, confused about human dignity, sexuality, gender, science and faith. Have we, as the church, taken up our challenge of looking at those questions and thinking them through and saying, Jesus, Bible, Gospel, what relevance do you have to these questions. Jesus, your death and resurrection, what do they mean for our culture? Why is it that you, in the year 2019, in this culture of confusion, continue to place your hope in Jesus Christ? The other disciples, they tell him, we have seen the Lord. And then we come to this hinge, verse 25, the thing about which our passage spins the hinge. Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hands into his side, I will not believe. So let's flip perspectives then. We've looked at this dialogue from the perspective of the Christians. Let's look at the dialogue from the perspective of Thomas and this key problem of his being absent when Jesus came. And we can speculate as to what he was up to um, when Jesus came. Why was Thomas not there? He could maybe be a bit of a problem character because after all, you know, it was him that was asking the hard questions back in chapter 14 as well. Maybe Thomas is one of these guys with a bit of a pessimistic, gloomy disposition. And he is loath to accept answers 
to the questions that he fires out like bullets. He might be loath to accept answers in life which do seem a little bit too good to be true. You might have heard people suggest to you that the Christian faith is a little bit like a psychological crutch, something which people that are scared of reality make up a fairy tale for them to step inside. Maybe that's the kind of thing Thomas was saying or thinking about this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead. It just can't be. It's, it's too good to be true. Maybe he was a pessimistic or gloomy person. Maybe another possible reason why he wasn't there is that he was a person who, in times of grief or trouble, cut himself off from his friends and from support structures. He might have been as devastated as anyone else at losing um, the person who he thought was going to be uh, the king, the person he was going to follow. He sees Jesus take this really unexpected crucifixion on a cross. Maybe Thomas is more devastated or just as devastated as anyone else. And he... Uh, decides to cut himself off from support structures. I don't know if you are someone that does that. Do you choose isolation? Do you cut yourself off from friends, from the church, from people that care for you when doubts come along? Bruce Milne, in his commentary on this passage, says that often the root of doubt lies precisely here. Some specific happening has broken into our world, seeming to contradict all else we have known or previously believed, and it blots out all other realities, including the word and the promise of God. And if you are a doubting person here this morning, when I said there may be some people in the room who can point to the one thing that holds you back, If you are a doubting person and you've got people in your life, Christians that rave about how great Jesus is and they tell you that they have seen the Lord, but it doesn't seem to connect for you. I want to ask whether it's possible that either of those two reasons, which might explain Thomas's doubtfulness, his isolation, whether it's possible that any of that might to some extent in a little way apply to you. But above all, I want to ask whether you feel let down by God. Whether you've been coming to church and it just hasn't seemed to click. I really want to dignify your position. I want to dignify your questions. I want to stand with you in that doubt. Because that is what Jesus does. He dignifies our questions. Thomas wasn't in the room the first time Jesus came. But think about the other side of that coin. When Thomas expresses his doubt, Jesus wasn't physically there, and yet he heard. He knew the one thing that was on the heart of Thomas and with which he was able to deal. Jesus hears, he knows your question. He knows your heart and he dignifies you. And he will rescue those who are willing. In verse 26, we read, a week later, 
his disciples were twice again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors are locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, see my side. Stop doubting and believe. Then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And there you have it. This shepherd doing it again. A hundred sheep, 99 all right, but there was one. There's not a sheep in a ditch anywhere that Jesus will not come to rescue. The Father's house has many rooms. There is a place for Thomas. And what we must admire about Thomas is that we find his question was not a smokescreen. He was not hiding behind it, throwing up one question after another in some kind of illusory act of why he would stay away from Jesus. This was the one thing, and he had the intellectual integrity to go and place his trust in Jesus when the evidence stacked up in favor of Jesus' love for him. Thoughts and questions are okay. Questions are the key, actually, to clarifying our thoughts, to developing a Christian worldview, to understanding what it really means to say that Christ is Lord. To seek is to ask a question, but are you open to an answer? And when that answer is given, will you accept it? I love the description that one of um, the world's most eminent theologians, uh, a guy by the name of Alistair McGrath, um, he has written books and books and books and books and books of concepts that I barely understand, words that I cannot spell. But he gives an amazingly simple illustration of what it means to place our faith in Jesus. He says it's a little bit like the decision to get married. Some of us in the room are married. Some of us are considering it. I've just bought some diamonds, actually, so um, I'll be doing something along these lines quite soon. But what is it to get married? When you are standing at the altar at the front of the church and you are deciding to put the rest of your life in the hands of this other person, you are saying, I trust you. I want to walk with you for the rest of my life. We're going to do this journey together. What you're not saying is that I know every single thing about you and every question that's going to present itself over the next 60 to 80 years, however long we should happen to live. I know the answer to that right now. And on that basis, I know everything I could ever possibly need to know. And therefore, let's do this commitment thing. What you're in fact saying at that decision to get married, and it's a perfectly rational decision, is that I have seen everything I need to know about your character, about your love for me. I trust you. And there will be doubts. There will be questions as we continue in life together. It's going to throw us some stuff, and I don't know what it is. 
but I trust you now and we're going to do this together. That's exactly what it means to place our faith in Jesus and to say yes to that journey of life together with him. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so it comes to us. It comes to us. And that question of whether we know life in Jesus' name. Have you come to him as your Lord and Savior? Have you seen his cross? Have you seen the evidence of his love for you? Have you understood what the resurrection means? His power, his authority, his trustworthiness as the person to take us through life and into eternal life? Is that a decision that you have taken Do you know life in Jesus' name? Maybe you're a little bit like me and you've been coming to church for years and that relationship with Jesus is not something that you know you're definitely enjoying at the moment or maybe you did years ago and that relationship has gone a little bit cold. As I close this morning, I just want to end up in the logical position that a talk like this would end up which is to invite you to come into that relationship with Jesus today, to say yes to life in his name, to understand his love for you and to place your trust in him for the rest of life to come. And it may well be that there are people in the room whose hearts are beating a little bit faster now for the past few minutes. You know that this is for you. You know that God is speaking to you. You know that you need to take that step into relationship with Christ. And if that is you, what I'd love to do is ask everyone to bow their heads. And I'm going to say the words of a short prayer, which if you know that this is for you, why don't you echo the words of that prayer in your own heart? Just as the band and others gather. If you know that you need to do business with God, then let's do that business and echo the words of this prayer in your own heart. Father God, thank you for your love for me. Thank you that you are there, that you care for me, and that you always have. Forgive me for ignoring that love and care in the past. I'm sorry for staying away from you, trying to live this life by myself. Jesus, I see your cross. I see that that means you love me. Thank you for being willing to die on the cross for me. Thank you that your resurrection means I could be in relationship with you. You're alive and you will lead me into eternal life. 
please come and make me a new person today and journey with me from this point forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the band are going to close us out with some more worship, but if you know that that was, that was just you, that something just happened, and that you prayed that prayer, let me tell you that God has heard you. And what's a really important next step is to share what's just happened with um, a Christian in your life, maybe the person that you come to church with week by week. And actually, during the worship, there's going to be some people over this side of the church willing to pray with you just now to talk a little bit more about what's happened. I'll be there too if you want to come and ask a question with me. But thank you so much for your kind attention, and I'll pass it over to the band.